Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I'm your host, Ali Milani, and we have a brilliant show for you this week. Uh, joining us later is Jeremy Corbyn, former leader of the Labour Party, MP for Islington North. Uh, and we've got a long interview with him talking about life and poetry, uh, most importantly. He's got a new poetry book out um, now, and, and we're going to go through some of that and some of his life experiences. But before we get to Jeremy, I've got in studio with me political correspondent at the New Statesman, Freddie Hayward. Freddie, thank you so much for joining us. How is the political world doing? It's been crazy. It's been a crazy week. We thought it was all sort of dying down. Everything's been in stasis, <laughs> a bit of a holding pattern. Mate, when was the last time politics was normal in Britain? I remember once. It was, I think it was January. <laughs> it, was the, it was the night before the Brexit vote, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it just seems like every week there's a new scandal. Yeah, completely. I mean, this is the part of the problem with the Conservative Party at the moment, that it's just inundated, riddled with scandal. Mm -hmm. We can't escape the past 13 years. Yeah, and speaking of scandal, where else better to start than Suella Braverman? So Suella Braverman has accused Rishi Sunak Sunak of betraying the UK when it comes to key policies and pledges over immigration. Braverman was sacked by Sunak on Monday and replaced by James Cleverley in a shock move. The former Prime Minister Lord Cameron was appointed as Foreign Secretary despite not being an MP uh, or a Lord. Uh, other new moves include uh, Victoria Atkins as the new Health Secretary and Steve Barclay has been demoted to Environmental Secretary. Can I ask you first, Freddie, did you see the sacking coming? I think most people suspected it might happen, didn't know if he had the spine to kind of do it and face off the right of his party. And then you, I don't think anyone saw Cameron coming. No, Suella Braverman being sacked was expected. I mean, we've got to remember that when Rishi first appointed her, it wasn't because they were allies or best friends. It's because he needed to shore up his support on the right of the party. Uh, Cameron's appointment, I think, was a surprise to everyone. Uh, there had been some you know, conversation, I think, maybe six or seven months ago, speculation that he mm. was perhaps getting advice from George Osborne. We know there's lots of connections in his number 10 setup between the coalition years and what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, but appointing a former prime minister. Yeah, was, uh, when he came out the door of the car, yeah. it was like the Royal Rumble and the return of like a, a wrestler comes in last minute. I don't think anyone saw it coming. It was, it was, it was unbelievable. I was actually doing a podcast at the time. We saw right. it came up and you're like, okay, <laughs> Lord Cameron's arrived. And what do you think this means for, for, for Rishi? Because obviously uh, it, it seems like his political strategy is all over the place. They were playing a little bit to more of the narrative of the right wing of the party with the Stop the Boats and Suella. It seems now he might be leaning back towards the centre, the One Nationism with, with Cameron. What, what, what is the thinking behind this move? Well, I think you're right to say that Sunak's political strategy at the moment is deeply incoherent. If we look yeah. back to the... We're on reset speech, number 65 or something. We are, and we're not, we're not sure where it's going. The, the conference speech, uh, one minute he was talking about smoking, the next he was talking about cars, the next he was talking about <laughs> 20 mile an hour limits in Wales. There was no coherent message to the people. It wasn't like, this is what... Uh, the country's going to look like in five years' time. Um, so, I, I mean, I completely agree. Why is Cameron there? Well, it's almost like they feel they've not done a great job, so they have to go back to someone who's done it before. Um, I think it does speak to the desperation within number 10. It's not as if... But this is all coming out from the polls, isn't it? They're in such a dire position in the polls that they're con- continuously, it seems like, searching for anything that will show signs of life and recovery. Yeah, completely. But if you... 
do want to recover in the polls, that you need a consistent strategy. Yeah. You've got to have a message. It has to be simple. It has to be, you know, get Brexit done or whatever it is, take back yeah. control. It has to be a message that's succinct, clear, speaks to what people's concerns are. Are people really waking up every day going, oh my God, I wish 14 year olds weren't able to smoke <laughs> yeah. in 10 years time? No, they're thinking about the cost of living, they're thinking about the economy, they're thinking about the fact they can't pay their bills. That's at the top of the I also priorities. think people don't really know what to make of Rishi. He's not really set his master. Like, yeah. he, like you said, he's jumping between strategies, jumping between policies, and overall, I think he polls a little bit better than his party, but it's pretty dire at yeah, the moment. They're, they're converging as well. It, yeah. Do you think there's any route to a recovery for him? Because I guess if 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 I was advising the Conservative Party, and God forbid that will never happen, but and they wouldn't, they might be for, listening right now. And they might, they probably wouldn't ask for this advice. But it does seem that that while Labour does have a huge amount of support in the polls. Um, a lot of that is, um, let's say, tentative support. Um, there's not a huge amount of enthusiasm behind behind Labour. That's that's certainly what the messaging has been. Is there any way back for the Tories? I think it's really difficult. I think you you need some major um, event, something seismic that would shift uh, politics at the moment. This was one of the key periods in politics to change that, and we've not seen the Conservatives do that. And the thing is now that they're running out of time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's piling pressure on that short campaign, those six weeks before the election, for them to turn something around. We know campaigns can be very important. Look back to 2017 with Theresa May and with Jeremy Corbyn, um, and look how the dial shifted in that campaign. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see that happen with yeah. Rishi Sunak? No, he's just quite a competent communicator. He doesn't. He, no one really loves him. He's also quite similar to Keir Starmer. I can't. I can't see the contrast between them really mm -hmm. shifting the dial much. So they need something major, and I, I just don't think. Yeah, uh, they're gonna they're gonna pull out the bag. And speaking of Sir Kirstarmer, he's had his own problems this week uh, in Parliament yeah. and over the last uh, month or so. So he's suffered a major rebellion over his stance on the Israel Gaza war, with 56 of his MPs voting for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, Jess Phillips, Asval Afzal Khan, Yasmin Qureshi are among the shadow cabinet's members uh, who have quit their roles to back uh, the ceasefire motion by the SNP. Ten of the party's front benches have left their jobs over the vote. Nineteen. Uh, supported publicly a ceasefire. Some didn't vote for it, obviously, um, including eight ministers. Uh, Sakir has instead backed pauses to the conflict uh, and the delivery of aid. Uh, how much should we look into this rebellion? 56 is quite significant, and it's probably one of the bigger ones under his leadership. It is. It's the biggest. And there have been 10 front benches, no shadow cabinet members, but 10 front benches um, who have had to resign because they wanted to support the cause for a ceasefire. I don't think it's that surprising. This has been rumbling on for quite a while now. I also don't think it's actually that threatening for Keir Starmer. It's obviously uh, not great. It makes him look as if he's got quite a divided party on this issue, and he definitely does. Is that going to bleed into disunity on other issues? Is it going to bleed into disunity on the NHS, tax? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it will, necessarily. That's been uh, the leader of the opposition's offices plan for a long time to try and, you know, restrict this um, outbreak of rebellion to this issue. And I, and I think I, it seems as if, uh, particularly with this prospect of going into government, that they'll be able to do that. Do you think Keir's strategy will be between now, look, an election, let's say four or five months, 12 months maximum? Is it this is the strategy just do no harm? Let let them let them end their own political careers across the aisle? Yeah, and I, I think so in part. Yeah, definitely. And that's proving extremely successful. Mm -hmm. They're doing so well in the polls. I think the strategy as well is to try and balance that desire within the country 
for security, the recognition that the past 10 years, 13 years has been a failure economically, the fact that so many people feel insecure in their jobs, that they don't feel as if they've had a, a pay rise in so long, the fact that we've seen trade unions uh, being broken down in the past five years, it's, it's tapping into that. And also recognising that there's a scepticism in the country about Labour. There's a, there's a, people don't really know what to make of him either, P- perhaps more than Rishi. Uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps. I think that's... I mean, the polling and the focus groups suggest. I mean, we saw his his word bubble yeah. on the Sunday program. Never trust a word bubble. But the census folks don't know what to make of him, what he stands yeah. for, and what positions he holds. But you don't, uh, from your body language and your response, you don't seem like that. That's a particular problem you don't think or might not be true. Yeah, well, either or both. Yeah, both. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think people are getting to know what he thinks more and mm. more. The more that he can stand up and say, we kicked Jeremy Corbyn out of the Labour Party, the more he can stand up and say, this is my position on Gaza mm. and Israel, the more... Also his conference speech. There seemed like a little bit more meat on that bone. There, or, there on, was. On, there on, was. I mean, and also he's he has gone on a bit of a journey <laughs> in the past two years. He has flip-flopped around massively. Yeah. You look at the U-turns that he's gone through, look at what he said during his leadership campaign, and look what he's saying now. They're completely different things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean what he's saying right now, uh, he doesn't believe, but you've got to, you've got to pick one. Um, but no, I think people are getting to learn the message. And there mm-hmm. is a message there. It is, as I was saying earlier, it's about security. It's about how can we involve a more active state in the economy? How can we ensure there's economic growth around the country? Mm. Um, and it seems a lot of the strategy is also to... to break down the anxiety that conservative voters will have in jumping yeah. across to Labour. So he's made an active effort to make that jump, that leap, a hop, if you will, yeah. uh, if not in policy, certainly in culture. Yeah, completely. So they had to do it on two fronts. On the economics, they had to do that because people saw the 2019 manifesto and whatever you think about that, they thought it was too much. Mm-hmm. They thought the spending wasn't costed. Whatever, whatever you think about that was the impression I can That's hear John McDonald <laughs> screaming into his pillow Sorry, you'll John. understand what I'm saying yeah. I think, well I think look I think, I think even Labour and even John and others have admitted not that it wasn't costed because it was it, you know they would argue that it was costed and I, I agree but that there was too much in it exactly it's the yeah. impression the, the impression is what Keir Starmer now has to grapple yeah. with yeah. and so he has that on the economy that's why you get all this hesitance around fiscal rules and uh, taxation for whether that's right or wrong um, in terms of policy then they also have to deal with the cultural side mm-hmm. um, so the way that they've done that for instance they've U-turned on self-ID for trans people uh, they've also stopped speaking about race as much as they used to in the you know racial inequality in society so there has been a shift Mm-hmm. on that messaging and there's also been a, a greater recognition yeah. of brexit there's been an emphasis on community yeah. uh, national stories so, these sorts of things last questions i'll ask you just yeah. your sense there's been there's there, there are rumblings within westminster that that Keir is going to be a more liberal prime minister than he appears now that this is all about you know making that jump from conservative to labor voters a little bit easier and in fact he will he will be a more i don't think anyone would accuse him of being radical but uh, perhaps slightly more uh, left than he's appearing now. Do you think there's any credence to that argument? I mean, yeah. I don't, but... Well, it's it's interesting. You, you use the word liberal. I think um, Keir Starmer has an authoritarian streak in him. He is a, a figure of the state. He has run a massive public uh, service before that put criminals away. That was his instinct. Mm-hmm. So on the liberal side of things, I think we should look at that. On whether he'll be more left-wing, I think there might it might just be the case that the circumstances in the country force him to be yeah. more... Uh, active on dealing the with economy. the NHS, dealing yeah. with the housing crisis, dealing the, the, with the economy. The most ambiguous thing on Labour's platform right now is their fiscal rules, which I bang on about all the time. <laughs> People think it's extremely boring, but it's also the most important thing because it's mm-hmm. going to dictate how much money the government spends spend. on hospitals, on roads, and everything mm-hmm. that everyone experiences politics in the day to day.
Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I hope we can uh, have you back on because you've been brilliant. That's Freddie Hayward, political correspondent at The New Statesman. Joining us next, we've got uh, a big interview, and that is Jeremy Corbyn, former leader of the Labour Party, MP for Islington North. Uh, He joined me for a long uh, interview, and rather than policy, one of the things that we wanted to speak about was get to know Jeremy the man, what it was like being leader, what that personal experience was like, because he's had plenty of interviews where he's talked about all the the, the top issues that you will know uh, about him, but I wanted to get deep uh, under the sort of hood uh, and get to know what it was like being the man uh, and he joined us uh, earlier today so joining me now the former leader of the labor party member of parliament for islington north uh leader and now poet uh jeremy corbyn mp jeremy thank you so much for joining us my pleasure first of all how are you very very well thank you as you see me yes well i was going to say i was going to start this if it was anyone else, I'd be starting this with, you know, post-leadership years. You must be having a lot of time off and relaxing, but it seems like your schedule is just as busy as it was when you were leader of the party. I'm shocked at the question, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, my whole life has always been very occupied and very busy, and now is no different to any other time. Yeah, and so you're, you're, you're still at the front line fighting yeah, the good I'm, fights. Obviously, the MP for my area and mm-hmm. uh, takes up a lot of time anyway. I'm um, doing a lot of stuff in Parliament, a lot of campaigning work and uh, building up the Peace and Justice Project, which is going extremely well. Mm. And um, working on a book I'm writing myself, which is going well. Yeah, uh, We're nearly at the uh, editing final editing stage. And this book we've just produced, Poetry. Yeah, so we're May. going to talk about the Poetry book. I actually didn't know that you were writing another book. Is that a memoir or...? It's um, No, not exactly. It started out as an analysis of the five years of leadership mm-hmm. of the Labour Party. But um, somebody pointed out to me, you couldn't really talk about that without putting it in the context of the political events that went before and of your own life. Mm-hmm. And so um, I then started writing a chapter about my own political activities. And uh, after this chapter got into the several tens of thousands of words, um, somebody suggested you make yeah. it into several chapters. You probably then, <laughs> once you're in the tens of thousands so, of words, yeah. I don't really think most chapters should go beyond about 5,000 words. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, the book is going extremely well, fascinating to do, and it will give, um, if you like, a balanced, I hope, view of mm-hmm. a lot of things and my side of the story. Yeah, so I, I, want, I do kind of want to look back a little bit and then look, as a result, look forward, because sure. I think you have one of the most interesting stories um, in British political world, certainly of my lifetime. Um, and so I want to kind of look back at your time as an MP, as leader of the party, and then that's probably informed the book that you've written, but also the themes of the poetry book, which we're going to talk about as well, which was brilliant and I read. Uh, start. Can you give me a little bit of your sense of your history in Islington North, I know how important your constituency is to you. I think that's one of the key things, even throughout your leadership years, um, and from everybody that I speak to in your area, because I'm not I'm not that far from it. Mm. Um, how did the story in Islington North start for you, councillor, activist? Um, I didn't set out in life to become a member of Parliament. That wasn't my sort of life's ambition. I was obviously active in the Labour Party. I was a councillor. I was a union organizer, and I'd done lots and lots of jobs. Um, and um, then when uh, the previous MP for Islington North, a gentleman called Michael O'Halloran, was, um, left the Labour Party and joined the SDP, and then um, 
the party then had to select a candidate. They, a group of comrades approached me and said, would I put my name forward? I thought about it and thought about it and said, all right. And then we had the longest selection process <laughs> ever. We had um, six months. Six months selection process? Yes. Jesus. Selection. in September 81. Um, at the time, Tony Benn was challenging for <laughs> deputy leadership of the party, and I was obviously very involved in his campaign, and it finished in uh, March 82. It's like a Premier League season. What, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> why was it so long? Well, they um, wanted to make sure everybody had a say, and right. every, everybody duly did have Was a there say. a lot of candidates? Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of candidates, and um, eventually... It was done by a general management committee delegate voting, and eventually I got it by 39 votes to 35 on the sixth ballot. On the sixth Did you think you were going to win when you put your name forward? No. No? No, you, you can't go into something like that assuming you're going to win. If you do, you certainly lose. Yeah. No, I said, look, I just said, look, this is me. Here I am. This is what I think about. Yeah, because I, when, I, when I did it in Uxbridge, under your leadership, yeah. um, I, the way I was convinced to do it was you run and just put the ideas on the on the table and then the eventual winner will take it on some I think to yeah. your to your leadership bits. And it was the same for you then. You yeah. were just putting the ideas So forward. I put the ideas then talked. I was a counselor in the neighbouring borough, so I obviously had some knowledge of well quite a lot of knowledge of the area. And um mm -hmm. I found it interesting doing these discussions and debates and the number of points that I brought out for it was that the MP has to be rooted in the community. They have to be involved in the community and they have to try and represent it. But above all, they mustn't never go away from the community, mm -hmm. which is why uh, during the time, during all of the time, my office, the only time I ever get irritated with my office is if they take time away from the constituency. Mm -hmm. And when I was leader of the party, we had this golden rule that um, at least one full day a week would be anything to North. And yeah. they said, can't do that. So I said, no, I'm sorry, yeah. this this is a rule that will not but be broken. But you know, it's, it's, this is the rule yeah, that will not be broken. It's not, I think that the reason that that's important, it's not just that you know, it lets you, allows you to stay connected to the community from an electoral perspective, but it keeps your ear to the ground. You get to hear from real people, right? Also, people I've known for a very long time. Yeah. And these are, you know, people in different communities, jobs, industries, businesses, all that. Yeah. I know them all very, very well. Yeah. And they will tell me what they think. And, th and I trust their opinions. And that difference is really interesting. I remember, um, and again, just one of my personal stories, I did... Um, one of the Sunday programs, when my campaign kicked off, I went on the Sunday program and I bombed. I was terrible, right? Mm -hmm. And I had a canvassing session straight after. And I drove back and I was in sweats. I thought I'd ruin everything. I thought I'd screwed you up and and, and um, you were going to get shit because of my performance. And then I started knocking on doors and realized no one watched it, <laughs> right? They, they had far too much in their own lives going on from like feeding the kids and affording... Yeah uniforms and things like that to pay attention to Westminster. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, you've had such a long and and uh, you've been through different eras in po British politics. That Westminster bubble, you got to tell me what that's like when you, because well, it's, it's not real life. It's kind of unreal. I remember <laughs> very early on, I'd been elected about a couple of months or so. So this would have been summer 83. I went to a meeting of a tenants association in July 
and the association meeting started about 7, 7.30, and it went on a bit, and so on. It came towards 9 o'clock, and um, I said to the chair, look, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to go now. Why? I said, well, I've got to go to Parliament, because there's a very important vote at 10 o'clock, and I think I should be there taking part in that vote, so I really have to go now, because I've got to get there. Is that all right? I said, no. I said, well, this, this is a bit difficult, but I, mean, I understand you've got some issues you still want to discuss, but we've already been here two hours. Mm -hmm. I said, hmm. And this woman said, Jeremy, listen, I met you just before the election, and you told me you're going to be for round here. I didn't realize you were also going to get mixed up with Westminster. <laughs> what did you think you were doing? <laughs> right. So, so, so she said, um, "Well, this time is all right, but you know, just mm. think." think. And yeah. I just realised that. Um, I mean, it was partly said in joke and jest, but also there is a, a, a point that is very easy to become totally absorbed with the yeah. minutiae of Westminster. Yeah. And uh, if you enjoy yeah. that kind of thing, it can be fascinating. Well, if I, you love gossip, but, but the, the problem—it's an unreality. But it's the, pro the, the problem with it is they're so disconnected. Yeah. And and like, I'll give you an example. I won't mention who because it's unfair. But I spoke to a st the the senior advisor to one of the shadow ministers, front benches. Uh, about the situation going on in Gaza. And I said, you know, do they know the amount of emails and up outrage within the communities? And the advisor told me, no, because we're not showing them the emails. We're keeping it from them, right? So to to kind of protect them from the, the, the stress and outrage of what's going on. And that led me to think, hang on, this person presumably spends most of their time in Westminster, right? Mm -hmm. So isn't actually interacting a whole lot with the community. And then they're not even seeing the emails. So it's so easy to then just get caught in that bubble, isn't it? To just yeah. think that that's, the, that's what everyone else is thinking. The tea rooms of the House of Commons is what everyone else is thinking. And that's where the divide in politics yeah, like comes. The point you were making um, about your canvassing session after the interview, uh, in reality, I'm in Parliament some days and there's like most massive furore about some process or other. Everybody's yak, yak, yakking all the time. And then the rest of the country doesn't care. <laughs> Yeah. So what? The bit that they care about is when they go to pay their energy bill, for example, yeah. and can't afford it, or right? Can't or, get a house or, or can't whatever. get a house. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, look, you did go to Westminster in the end, um, and you spent quite a lot of time campaigning on the, the issues that you were really passionate about. But eventually, we get to the 2015 leadership election. And we've had John McDonnell on here kind of talked us through how that went in the beginning processes and from his perspective, what it was like. Mm. What I'd love to hear from you is look, Again, kind of like when you ran for MP, you didn't think you were going to win that leadership, did you? Well, no, we put my name forward because I was very determined that we put up a challenge. I have to say, many of my colleagues, close colleagues in the Socialist Campaign Group said it's a waste of time, there's no point in doing it. Yeah. We even had a meeting of various left groups in um, Camden one night. It was probably organised by Labour Representation Committee and a whole lot of groups there. And they sort of... Oh, no, a waste of time. We'll never get it. We'll, we'll never get, get the won't even get on the ballot. What's yeah. the point? We should concentrate on doing policy. And I got quite annoyed. And I said, look, guys, if you miss this opportunity to stake your claim to a different form of politics, to stand up against the austerity economics and all this, then 
forget it on policy in the future because you've lost the chance to raise it mm -hmm. at the time when party members are most engaged. And they, they didn't really agree with me. Yeah. Um, and this was like about two weeks before the whole thing kicked off. I then went away to the USA for a week uh, on Guantanamo Bay. We were lobbying uh, the Senate and the House. And I went to New York for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. So I was away for about a week. And I came back, and they're still having the same discussion. And I, so I said, look, if you don't put up, you can't complain. And mm -hmm. It's not about me. It's about whoever you decide to put up. So eventually, we get to a meeting of the campaign group MPs, which wasn't very big. And they um, go around the table. So, OK, we, I, went, I made the same speech, and somebody's got to do it. So they all said, OK, John, Mac, you do it. You did it last time. He said, no, nope, done all that. I'm not doing that again. Mm -hmm. OK. So we then get to look around at Diane. Abbott, yeah, she'd done it before. Said, I've done that before. <laughs> I'm not doing it again, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. She said, Which is a good endorsement for you. She <laughs> said, it's hell doing it. And so there was then a silence, and I bent over and wrote some of my notebook, because i kind of inveterate note taker. And I look up, and they're all pointed at me. <laughs> you realize you're the last I man said, left in the room. I said, what's the matter with you guys? They said... Um, well, since you're the one who talked us into this, you better do it. Mm. So, <sighs> all right. <laughs> and at that point, Diane's hand shot across the table and she pressed something. I said, what was that? She said, I'm just sending out a tweet saying you're running. Oh, Christ. <laughs> so, really nailing you to that so decision. Yeah, no escape from that point onwards. Yeah. And and, and well, I, we had no organisation, we had no money, we didn't yeah. have anything. We just had my credit card, and that didn't last. Yeah, long. And um, then we we um, just went out there and said, yeah. "Okay, this is to direct the party away from austerity economics into a different form of politics." Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we had the Nuneaton debate almost straight away. That was a news night, yeah, early evening Nuneaton debate. Uh, with the other candidates, and things began to change very quickly. At what point did you realize we might win this thing? Um, was there a moment where you were like... Yeah, there, there was. Um, to begin with, um, I remember talking privately to John and others. I said, well, how do you think we're going to do? And they were sort of saying, oh, 20 25%. And I said, it might be better than that, maybe 30 mm -hmm. You know, um, When it began to change was that we'd done... A lot of these, we'd started doing the regional hustings and they'd gone very well. And we organized a public meeting straight after the uh, East Midlands hustings in Nottingham at the Arts Centre. And it was absolutely rampacked half an hour before it was due to begin. And so I thought, it's a sign of something. Yeah. And um, then um, we, the hustings got bigger and bigger. And um, and you were running was beginning to grow. You right. were running a kind of different campaign, I remember, because yeah. traditionally, I think what the leadership campaigns they do lots of media and they do the hustings. Yeah. But you did a lot of community-based events. Right? You did, pack out rooms and speak directly to the I members. I did public meetings all over the place. There was never a restriction on attendance. Yeah, and we did a lot of open air rallies as well because it was summertime. Yeah. It was easier to do that, um, and so that changed the atmosphere. When it fundamentally changed was we were in South Wales doing events there, and I'd done. Um, South Wales, um, uh, I'd done Welsh Radio that morning, Sunday morning. And then I was going back to the station in Cardiff and uh, I got a call um, 
from Unite to say the Unite executive is now nominating you. Right. And that was, yeah. That, that was, was big. A yeah. Very important moment because mm. Unite were then formally backing me. Other unions already said they would, like Aslak yeah. and so on, but Unite came on came on board at that stage. Um, I was still not convinced we were going to win. I was the last person to be convinced we had a chance of winning, right, and that yeah. was in probably the middle of August. But I, what I said was, um, don't imagine we're going to win. The campaign has got to go on. Yeah. And we had all these uh, phone banking sessions. We probably had the um, biggest phone bank ever. I think we had 600 people on a phone yeah. bank one day, that sort of thing. So we did a big campaign and mobilized a lot of people. Yeah. And, but you know the result. It was amazing. So I, I'm, this is, I've always been curious about this. You win the election. Mm. That night, you go home. Put the key in the door, open, mm. sit on the couch. Mm. What are you feeling? Well, um, we went, first of all, to uh, Troya Restaurant at um, South Bank, and uh, John was there and a lot of other people. I wanted just to say thank you to the team for mm. everything they'd done. Um, and uh, we were... Like, and then I got home and thought, oh, wow. And then the next day, there was the, the first of... Um, but what are you feeling when you're at home? Are you, is okay, there a little bit I of fear? Is there a little bit of, of the proud? Yeah, we had made um, very humble to have been had this thing, this yeah. trust place. Because it wasn't me. it wasn't a small margin of victory either. It was quite no, a big margin of victory. It was overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then I was just sort of starting to think of all the issues we're going to face and all the problems we would get and the difficulties, but also the opportunity. Mm -hmm the opportunity to develop our political system in a much more open way and open up particularly for uh, marginalized communities. Fundamentally, it's one for everybody. Yeah. Then the next argument was about um, the following morning because I was told by the Labour Party head office that the tradition was the newly elected leader went to do Andrew Marr the next morning. All right. And I said, well, so what? And they said, well, you've got to do it. I said, no, I've already booked to do a um, mental health day event with the Camden Islington um, Mental Health Group mm. and, uh, to talk about mental health. Yeah. So I'll do that. And uh, immediately after, you went to the refugee before, event. Yeah. Immediately after I was elected, um, I, I said, well, I'm going to start as I'm yeah. going to go on. I'm going to speak at the Refugees are Welcome rally yeah. in Parliament Square, which I did. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, a lot of my team didn't want me to do that because they said it's um, difficult security-wise mm. and crowds and things. But you know, have you ever so been concerned I, I, I about you going to do it? Have you ever been concerned about your security? Not really. No, I mean, you you can't go around always being worried about your own mm. security because if you do, you end up never going yeah. anywhere. And but I imagine your family have always been concerned. About yeah, that, right? my yeah. loved ones and family, and my wife Lara and my sons are continually worried yeah. about this and we have had um i can imagine we've yeah. had some very unpleasant incidents but, but not, i think but, but you know 90 percent of it is the opposite no yeah 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 i imagine 90 percent of it will be yeah positive right and what the are those places i feel is islington, islington north. north right yeah. so i want to kind of look back on your leadership years i re i totally reject this idea that because we didn't win in 2019 that nothing was achieved in in the five years of leadership um, and I'll give you a few examples as to what I think, even if you think away from policy. I mean, there were lots of things that you got the government to U-turn on. Um, I also think it's worth bearing in mind a lot of people don't know that the even during COVID, the uh, the scheme where people got paid, it's gone out of my head now, uh, the, yeah. the name of it, yeah. was actually a policy idea that came that from came us. Yeah. From, from us. Well, yeah, 
that's that's fair. thank you. That's yeah. ab absolutely right. Um, well, we achieved some significant policy changes. We opened up a whole debate about um, austerity economics and, and so on, and the idea that austerity economics mm -hmm. has got to lower living standards rather than redistribute power and wealth. And actually, the Financial Times conceded that. Mm -hmm. They said, thanks to the efforts of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn to challenge yeah. austerity economics, things have changed. Yeah. It's no I, longer that easy But agenda. that's so important because I think, I remember when Ed was leader, and we gave up the space, and I'm not having to go at Ed, but I think the whole party did this. We gave up the austerity space. Yeah. Because we weren't anti-austerity, we moved the norm in, in our political space yeah. where it became almost impossible for people to yeah. argue against austerity. The 2015 election, yeah. both parties were committed to a wage freeze yeah. in the public sector. Yeah. Uh, look, I think if we'd adopted an anti-austerity position, um, we would have won that 2015 election. Yeah. And if, honestly... I think Ed would admit that in his heart as well. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting, my perspective, and it is just entirely my perspective, I think once Ed saw your leadership, he felt like maybe he was a little bit too chained to the status quo when he was leader and he wished he could have yeah. uh, gone further. But I want you to look back. So the five years, what are some of the proudest achievements? Proudest uh, issues, Iraq war apology. Yeah. Green New Deal policies, getting parliament to agree um, on a climate emergency being declared by Britain, the public ownership debate, which is now everybody's in favour of public ownership mm -hmm. of rail, mail, water um, and energy, um, being prepared to stand up to issues on foreign policy where we don't go in militarily, instead we go in with a, an agenda for peace and for change. But above all, of mobilizing an awful lot of people to become mm -hmm. involved in politics. I've just come from SOAS. Yeah. I was doing a, a reading of um, law about um, conflict, conflict war, you know, war, rules of war, reading them out. Hundreds and hundreds of students there. So many of them said, I only got involved in politics during your time as leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so on that, on the mobilization, I want to show you something. Can we throw, so for those who aren't watching, we're watching you at Glastonbury mm -hmm. giving the speech in front of what looks like to me like hundreds of thousands of people and we won't be able to hear it um we, I know we've got the hotkey but you don't have your um your headphones on but I'll play this now for you yeah yeah hang on What is that like? It was quite extraordinary. Um, that That is unprecedented in British politics. We're not, our politics just isn't like that, right? It's not America where you get these massive rallies where thousands of people show up. But here you've got hundreds of thousands of people who most of them, let's be honest, wouldn't have had politics as one of their top issues that they're interested in in their life, even though we know politics affects all of us. And there you are stood with hundreds of thousands of people at Glastonbury singing, you know, Jeremy Corbyn. 
It was an amazing experience, and I was very pleased we did it. Um, we wrote, the office got very excited about Glastonbury. Every single person in the office thought it was necessary for them to be at Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Every single one said yeah. it's really necessary yeah. for me yeah. come. Jerry, so, just for your security, I have to come. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time in discussion with Michael Evers. Yeah. Um, about how many tickets we yeah. could have. He was very generous, yeah. to be fair. But did you think at that point, I could win a general election? Well, I thought, my God, we've, we've got this, having not won a general yeah. election, which is one of the reasons I pushed really yeah. hard for an early poll. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was really yeah. exciting. To do. And, but you and, know what? Six months later, maybe less than six months later, I was at Glastonbury again, because Michael invited me to go there to um, open the social housing units that he'd built with the profits of Glastonbury. Mm -hmm. Well done him. Yeah. So I went to open them and meet the new tenants and residents. And then we went to the field. Yeah. It was empty. The pyramid <laughs> stage had gone, except for like the skeleton of it. Right. And the sheep were there. Right. So I stood there in the middle of the field amongst the sheep looking at the stage. Yeah, which knowing you as well, you empty. love nature, so why I not? Yeah. And you could yeah. see Glastonbury Tour. And I remember being taken to Glastonbury Tour as a kid by my mum and dad yeah. because we lived in Wiltshire. Yeah. And um, so obviously at that point, I think you think we got a chance at least yeah. at yeah. a general election. Um, this mobilization, I think, is really, really important yeah. because often I think our politics is obsessed with the Westminster game. But one of the things that your leadership did, certainly, without a Jeremy Corbyn leadership, and I don't want to focus on you just as an individual. Obviously, you were the leadership, but you were the leader of a movement, right? Mm -hmm. Without Jeremy Corbyn, I don't think Zara Sultana MP happens. I don't think, um, for example, Apsana Begum happens. Mm -hmm. There are so many journalists that I know that kind of got inspired into politics that have gone into journalism. And for sure, I can tell you for sure, Ali Milani isn't sat in the studio interviewing now. Is that something that you can look on proudly yeah. to say, look, this, I inspired these people to get into politics? I look very proudly on the way we managed to excite and mobilize so many people. What I always felt was that we were a distance away from the movement we'd created. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in my diary the um, weekend I was elected and I'd spent the whole weekend in arguments with people in the Parliamentary Labour Party about appointments and so on and I sort of realized the problems that was going to be thrown at me. And I felt we're in danger of being so high up the beach, we're too mm -hmm. far away from the crowd at the south, at the bottom yeah. of it. And all the time, my leadership, there was this problem of the um, traditions, attitudes of yeah. the bureaucracy of the Labour Party, which were pretty hostile to me, gave me a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. And um, the Parliamentary Labour Party, which um, was very hostile to me from the very beginning. And it was only after the um, 2017 election, that was two years later, uh, things became a bit better yeah. because of more people have been yeah. elected as Labour MPs so who were sympathetic. I want to ask you this, and oh, we'll move on on this. Regrets. Looking back, um, I mean, it's so easy in hindsight to look back and go, I would have done this, this, and this We different. underestimated the opposition within the Labour Party. I had um, a belief that all those that worked for the Labour Party would support what we were trying to do. They didn't. They undermined and they tried to weaken it. And um, dealing with the mainstream media is never easy. We underestimated the malevolence and the hostility 
of um, right-wing mm-hmm. press in Britain. I mean, and, at one point, uh, the Daily Mail ran like a 15-page spread or something like that. The Daily Mail, the Daily yeah. Express, um, all of them ran terrible stuff on me day in, day out, and my house was under siege. What was Sometimes that like? Lara couldn't go out at all. What was that like? Horrible. Yeah. Because you, you wake up in the morning. Most people wake up on a summer's morning hoping to hear a dawn chorus. What do I hear? Yeah. Chattering photographers outside who then jostle has, uh, and harass. Yeah. But also, like, you mentioned on. you mentioned your your wife, your family often, and I know this because I got maybe 0.5 percent of it when I ran mm. against Boris. Your family end up paying the price for it, don't they? Absolutely, and it meant that. Lara, who is um, very political, very active, very knowledgeable, um, got either belittled or abused or attacked and so on. And she's actually a very significant Mm -hmm. person in her own right, nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's um, a Mexican woman, very interested in Mexico and so on. And uh, obviously she got a lot of attacks, as did my sons. Yeah. Um, and everyone, I think and, people forget often. I think the media forget. Them, I mean, in a sense, I I can take it because it's me. I chose yeah. to do this. They didn't and the horrors they got. The other yeah. thing is one should be very careful of the insidious language that's used by the media you think you're friends. Mm-hmm. Now, I wrongly, completely wrongly assumed that liberal papers, so-called like The Guardian, would be, I'm not asking for endorsement, I'm not asking for support, at least give us a fair hearing. They didn't. You didn't feel like they gave you a fair no, hearing? No. Not Did anyone give you a fair hearing? Well, under uh, academic analysis show that only 90% of the media reporting was hostile. <laughs> only that you got 10%. Well, no, some of them okay. are neutral. All right, I'm going to ask you this question. Be honest with me, okay? Of course. Looking back... I put you in a time machine, take you back to that room where John said, I'm not doing it. Diane said, I'm not doing it. And you make that decision again. Would you run again? Yes. 100%. 100%. You said that without even... Without a blink, without a delay, without hesitation. This is like uh, just a minute, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, 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 well, that, that, that tells me exactly where you are. And um, I, so I have to ask you a little bit about Keir. I hope you don't mind. Because he served in your shadow cabinet. What was it like with him at, at the time? Did you have a relationship with him? Um we appointed him as a shadow um, Brexit secretary um, after the referendum. Uh, I knew what his views were on Brexit, obviously, um, and I, I felt that we were having going to navigate a difficult path. And I also appointed people to join in the negotiating team with the government who had an opposite point of view to him, John Trickett and uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, for example. Um, how should I put it? I never felt very close to Keir. He was efficient at um, analyzing the legislation and very quick at that. Um, But was he particularly involved in everything else and every other political discussion? No, didn't Mm -hmm. show much interest in all the other issues we're dealing with. Never spoke when we were discussing housing, environment or anything else. Uh, Was Was he close? No. Did you feel like, um, you know, he just had an interest in his own brief and nothing else? I asked him to do that brief. Um, we went to Brussels together a couple of times and we had um, lengthy discussions with Michel Barnier. I felt that we were in quite a good place when I proposed a customs union as a way forward, a sort of a leave EU, have customs union alternative, which would mm-hmm. have meant you basically there wouldn't be the disruption of trade. Um 
he apparently went along with that and supported that and indeed was there at the Coventry speech when I uh, proposed that. Yeah. Um, but do you, do you he, regret... he's, he's a very yeah. different person now than he was then. Oh, really? okay. So it's, yeah. it's very, very different now. Yeah. 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 Uh, even on a personal level, I assume you guys don't talk now. Well, he hasn't but... spoken to me for two years. Or... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have a question. Just on that Brexit policy, do you regret the, the position we ended up with in 2019? Because I, I tell you what, I supported it. I thought it was I mean, the right move at the time. It was, I now think, you know, I was wrong at the time. Well, I, have I think a we should have stuck to our guns. Complicated but... problem to deal with, which um, ended up on my lap. The problem is, um, Labour supporters around the country support Labour because they want to see a political change. They want to see social justice. People in my constituency on housing benefit, universal credit, are hard up. Most of them voted Remain. People in um, Easington, in the Northeast, on housing benefit in exactly the same situation probably voted leave. Mm -hmm. Their unity ought to be about progress towards social justice. Yeah. So I tried to bring people together on this. And that, that bothered me, I remember, because I was in a leave seat. Yeah. And the narrative was, well, everyone who voted leave was a bunch of racists, right? Which they're who, not. Which they're not. Yeah. But we weren't allowed to say that because yeah. the liberal media would hammer you if, yeah. you if you said, no, well, they had genuine economic angst and maybe they chose the wrong area to put it in, but they it had was economic genuine. Angst. And I remember I was in Cornwall uh, campaigning for a yes vote in, in the referendum, the uh, remain and reform agenda that we put forward. I remember having a discussion with people in Cornwall. Now, Cornwall had a lot of objective one money from the EU but is a poor county. No mm -hmm. question about that. Wages are very low. Jobs are very insecure. And the whole place gets swamped and by property developers buying up second homes and leaving them empty most of the time. Mm -hmm. So it's um, there's a lot of unhappiness in Cornwall. And I remember talking to a bunch of people in Truro and other places, and they were all going to vote leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, why? They said, there's nothing in it for us. And um, I got the same in other places. I felt that, in a sense, it was a vote, yes, for a different way of doing things, but it was a vote of anger against mm -hmm. communities that had been left behind. Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously, I think Keir spearheaded uh, the second referendum. And I remember this conference speech where he said, you know, Remain would very much be uh, on the table. Um, and I think... Yeah. I'll be honest with you, I think that was the moment we lost the election in 2019, because yeah. even when I was door knocking, there's nothing that I could say that broke through that Brexit barrier. Yeah, um, we, we obviously tried to run the election yeah. campaign on health, social justice and yeah. all the other issues. I mean, I even I, I laid down in front of a bulldozer to try and get people, yeah. but it well, was see, just Brexit. My constituency voted 80% remain in, yeah. the, in the referendum. Yeah. Uh, and um, they were concerned yeah, nobody was happy. Did we make the right call? Uh -huh. We made the call that seemed to me a way of bringing the party together. And I have to say, on the eve of the 2019 conference, there was a meeting of TULO, trade unions and labor organization. All the unions were there that were affiliated to the party, some of whom had been remained, some of whom had been leave. Mm -hmm. unanimous support for that decision yeah yeah okay last last question on, on care i promise because i want to get to the book now mm. um it's looking likely that he might be the next prime minister um uh, you you worked with him at least i mean you, you didn't have a personal relationship a particular personal relationship but you worked with him if an alien was to come to earth and you had to describe Kier in one or two words to them what words would you use i would say he's um 
somebody that um, is very determined to hold on to his position, exercises power in a very personal and quite ruthless way at times, and um, sees what he believes the right form of winning an election to be an end in itself rather than a means to mm -hmm. an end. And I get um, concerned about that and concerned about the undermining of democracy in the party and some of the rule changes that he's pushed through. One, for example, which uh, is astonishing, which says the rules of natural justice do not apply to the Labour Party rule book. Yeah, um, I mean, I've 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 been on the receiving end of some of those rule changes. Out there, I want to get to and the book. And natural justice yeah. on me has been rather limited as well. Yeah, I do. I, so I want to get to the book because yep. that's the reason we're here. Yep. So uh, you've written a book, uh, or you've you've put together a book with Len McCluskey, poetry for the many. Tell us a little bit about how this came together. Well, Len and I were having a chat in my office one time about economic strategy and we get on very well so we had a long chat we, there wasn't really much <coughs> debate we were fundamentally in agreement then Len sort of stretches back like this looks around and sees my bookcase he said why, why have you got all these poetry books in your bookcase I said well I like poetry he, he said I haven't got that one can I borrow it <laughs> yeah sure, be my guest um, and so Len often quotes particularly Emily Dickinson and um, he was very interested as to why I quoted from Ben Ockrey in my conference speech in 2015 mm. just after I've been elected and I said well I think there's a poet in all of us and poetry inspires and excites and too many young people continue writing poetry after leaving primary school mm. but are embarrassed to say so yeah and so um, we then talked about this quite a lot and then I said, look, why don't we try with Melissa Benn, because she's ideal for this, to do a poetry evening in Liverpool at the Casa. I said, okay. <laughs> so we had an evening at the Casa. We booked it. Uh, the Casa's a club in Hope Street in Liverpool. Absolutely packed out to the rafters. You couldn't, we could hardly get in ourselves. <laughs> right. When I, I thought this yeah. thing was going to be a bit of a... Well, you would think you know, so with poetry. Yeah, yeah, because know, because as you as you write in your we introduction, there, did it? yeah. It was fantastic. Then, well, I think what's interesting about the book in your introduction, yeah. you write about how sometimes poetry is kind of looked down upon, or people are embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. And there are poets in all of us, but people are embarrassed to bring it out. Yeah, well, that's right. There's a poet in everybody. So we did the event in the Casa. That was really good. Then Colin Robinson from All Books was there, who's an old friend, and he's from Liverpool as well, although he lives in New York now, and he was there because he was seeing his dad, and he. Um, he said that was really nice. I enjoyed that. Would you would you two like to put it into a book? What? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, think about it. So we thought about it and then agreed we would um, try it and we would choose poems each, write as to what they meant to us and then invite other people such as um, Morag Livingstone, Ken Loach, I've got them here, Gary Young, Maxine Peake, Michael Rosen and so on each to choose a poem and say why they loved it. Mm. And so it took longer than I thought it would to put together and much harder to do than I expected because it's very hard leaving poems out. Yeah, and yeah. it's a labor of love, right? Because it's a you, labor yeah. of love. Yeah. And so what I did was um, I booked um, quite a lot of 
evening time and weekend time. And then my desk just became like a poetry <laughs> right, yeah. And I kept phoning people up and saying, have you got the complete works of Brecht? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, I think we have somewhere. Yeah. So I borrow all these books. So how many poems did you go through? How many are in there in the end? And there's 20 each. In so there how in many did end. you go through to get to oh, the 20? Hundreds. Hundreds. I read an awful lot of poetry. I read a lot of poetry yeah. anyway, so it was yeah. a joy. So It was a love and a joy doing you, it. it. It's funny that we talk about this because, um, so as you know, I come from an Iranian background. Yeah. And poetry is a big part of our culture. Absolutely. And I grew up with poetry to, to the point of frustration. My dad, whenever he wanted to tell me off, wouldn't shout, wouldn't tell me off. He'd, he'd read poetry to me as a sort of le lesson to learn. And one of the big ones he used to say, the translation's awful. It doesn't, Look, it the, doesn't translate. Favor, for the next poetry book, will you give us some advice on an Iranian poet? I, I uh, absolutely, I have, well, first of all- The my, one that your dad read to you. So my dad read my granddad's poetry. My granddad was a poet himself, published okay. poet in Iran. And he had, this, um, he had this poem that he always used to say to me. He's passed away now, both my dad and my granddad. But um, it, the, the translation doesn't work, but essentially it would be something like, every day you go to shower and you cleanse your body one day I wish you'd go to shower and cleanse your soul. And he always used to say this to me, right? As a way of teaching, whenever I did something bad, he'd say, go into the shower, don't just cleanse your body, cleanse your soul and come back out. So I know how important poetry can be. And how powerful. And how powerful it can be. And I often say in politics, politics is poetry, it's not prose. Yes. And I think nothing encapsulates that better than for the many, not the few. Because poetry of course, where does that come what from? what inspires people. And my whole political message is, not about the details of economics, the details of this, details mm -hmm. that. It's the spirit that moves people. Mm -hmm. And political change does not come from yeah. what MPs say to each other in the tea room. Political change comes because of the activity of people it's all, in I, our community. But it's also so powerful in terms of a communication message. And it's, we, it's me, me and the producers were sat in, in, in the sort of green room before you came in, and I was saying one of the best lessons that I've learned in politics is that the way to get people to join you in your movement, in your yeah. ideas, isn't it's not what you say, it's how you make them feel. And that's the power that I think for the many, not the few as a slogan had, which of course comes from poetry. Yeah. And yeah. and that's the power that poetry it's has. It's inspired by Shelley, yeah. that's where it came from. Yeah, We spent ages trying to think up something for the uh, uh, 2017 election manifesto. Yeah, how did you come to it? So Well, we were having a discussion in the office and people come up with various things. I said, nah, 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 none of that. No, no, none of that's <laughs> gonna work. I said, "What we're you've got to understand what this is about. Yeah, this is about people. It's about mobilizing people. It's about giving people hope. It's it's not about sort of offering a um, uh, you know, an a la carte menu of what what's going on. It's about hope, and it's about the the holistic approach, and it's about art and everything else. And that's why every one of our rallies had music and so on and so on. Mm. And they they said, "Yeah. So, what's your favorite poem?" I said, "Well, it's, that's hard, but I suppose you've got to say Shelley." They said, oh, yeah, yeah, that bit about many. I said, yeah, got it. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, so I yep. do want to ask you something. Yep. Um, this is a the questionnaire that we ask all of our guests, and I'm going to get you to read okay. your poem Thank right you. at the end of the, yeah. the thing, if that's okay. But we ask all of our guests... Um, uh, a list of questionnaires. It's from a French series by Bernard Pivot called Boline de Culture. And it's a questionnaire that I love because I okay. think it gives us an insight into the person's mind. Um, and I've asked John this. I've asked Michael Crick, who was a journalist who was here. I've asked him. So, um, God, he could be irritating, but he's very interesting. Uh, you know, he on the on the question of Labour Party democracy, yeah, he would cool. never claim to be on the left of the party. He said yeah. it here. He said, I actually identify with the rights of the party. Yeah. But the democratic sort of deficit in the yeah. party right now is horrible. Yeah. Anyway, Absolutely. on this. So, so, 
Question now on Bernard Pavot. First things that come to your mind. What is your favorite word? No. When people are trying to ask me to do something, I refuse <laughs> you to do. You keep saying no. Uh, have you found it hard to say no in your life? Sometimes. Yeah. What is your least favorite word? Local government language describing deficits. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You said local government. I had flashback to bins. Christ, the amount of emails I got about bins. So what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? What's something that gets your um, juices going in terms of creativity? Nature, beauty, and imaginative art and poetry. And what turns you off? Um, boring mainstream music. All right. Anyone you want to name? No, no. no. Just, most of radio too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm often told that I have the music taste of an 80 year old, so um, uh, I'm not a big fan of modern music either. What's your okay? So John refused to ask, ask, answer this question, and you can also refuse to answer. What's your favorite curse word or swear word? If you have one, we're allowed to swear on that. Um, you can miss oh, this one. Damn out. you! <laughs> um, what sound or noise? Sort of quite low key. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What sound or noise do you hate? Screech of um, metal on metal. Yeah. What sound or noise do you love? Um, bird song. Bird song. Right. Yeah. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? So, if you weren't a politician, what would you like to do? Mm, probably a farmer yeah I, could, I, could, I, could, I was going to say because I know you once gave me some jam I don't know if you remember as a candidate you gave I me do. some jam I do. Um, and my mum particularly loved it what profession does she want more is that a request for more <laughs> if, or if, if there's going uh, I'll drive to North London what profession uh, would you never like to do so what's the worst profession you can think of Ooh. not that there's anything wrong with it but you can't no, see yourself I doing you it I think I'd be the world's worst banker because I'd be far too I'd be <laughs> Given far too generous with the poor customers um, and then if heaven exists what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, welcome, but can you explain what you've been doing? <laughs> 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 right. So I do want to end it. We've been talking about the poetry book and it's so it's, so, it's such an important part of why you're here and what you're doing. And you've written a very, I read this two nights ago. Um, you've written a, a, a really interesting poem about Calais. Yeah. You can either read that or one of your other fa what, favorites. I'd love to. Just to say the book is dedicated to Julian Assange. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freedom. And how, how can people get it? They can get it everywhere, right? You get it everywhere. Yeah. Buy it directly from all books. Buy it online or access Peace and Justice Project website, yeah. thecorbinproject.com, and that will direct you to how to buy it. Um, I chose lots of poems, um, all of which were beautiful in their own way, some of which are very challenging. Um, very nice one from Sawana Inez de la Cruz, a Mexican woman who was... Um, died very young she was in uh, colonial mexico and uh, the catholic church hated her because she could read and write and she um, wrote up for women's rights so she was imprisoned and uh, she died and then the church destroyed nearly all of her papers but octavia paz and others have managed to recover some mm -hmm. so we put her poem in you foolish men Oh, nice. And it was written a yeah. hundred years before Mary Wollstonecraft came along. Oh, wow. So I, I think we're running out of time. So yeah, if you could just do a I, um, snippet of it. Snippet. I feel very, very angry about the way we treat refugees, asylum seekers. Uh -huh. I've been to Calais a number of times. And when I came back from one visit to Calais, I wrote a poem. I won't read it all because um, there isn't enough time. I'll just read the first uh, uh, three verses, if I may. Cold, wet marshlands surround Calais in winter. The poem is called Calais in Winter. So I'll start again. Cold, wet marshlands surround Calais in winter. 
Police take tents away from the homeless. The railway station is protected with razor wire. Motorways have walls on each side. Trees are cut down to create open land. Huge rocks prevent anyone leaving a road. There is fear in Calais. It stalks every official building. It seeps into the minds of the police. It pervades all thinking. It gives imagination to cold-hearted people to confront the enemy. When they escape to the sea in flimsy boats that would be at home in a small lake, they have to be stopped with bayonets puncturing them, clothing taken that would protect against the cold. The enemy comes on foot in lorries and buses with few clothes, no money and no food, few friends, only memories of bombardment and war, of families in jail, of crops destroyed, of empty schools, of floods and drought, of bitter travelling, in secret lorries, on mountain paths, in safe houses, of razor wires and cameras hidden in trees. Jeremy Corbyn, MP for Islington North, poet now, uh, and former leader of the Labour Party. I think you began your leadership by going to a refugee um, Refugees are welcome event, um, and I can't think of anything more apt to end the interview with you reading your 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 wonderful poem about Calais, refugees in Calais. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining us. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.